The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Last week was a pivotal moment in the history of one of the oldest automakers on the planet. For the first time in more than 20 years, Ford returned to Formula One racing. But it didn't decide to come back with just anyone. It came back with the team that's on top of the world, Red Bull. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome now the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company, Jim Farley. This is huge news to round out our launch event here in New York. Here he comes, as you can see, in a Red Bull-themed E Ford. I'm gonna give you to the floor to share your news. Jim, you're first. Well, uh, I have to say Ford is gonna return to Formula One after more than 20 years. The agreement to work side-by-side -side with Red Bull starting in 2026 was rolled out as a watershed moment for both teams. Both Ford and Red Bull would learn from each other as F1 changes its powertrain requirements and as the auto industry increasingly goes electric. Future Fords will benefit from the aerodynamic learnings of a Formula One team. Red Bull will benefit from Ford's movement into more advanced powertrains. That was part one of last week. There was an even larger element that also existed. CEO Jim Farley was publicly frustrated when the automaker released its Q4 and full year earnings, both of which were disappointing. Welcome back, everybody. Ford shares are trading lower this morning. This comes after the automaker's big miss when it comes to earnings. The company says that execution issues plagued operations. The CEO, Jim Farley, was very direct about Ford's issues when he spoke last night to our Phil LeBeau. Phil, what did he have to say? Uh, Becky, there is a level of frustration that we heard from Jim Farley during our exclusive interview. It's clear he realizes that the problems at Ford are substantial. Farley didn't shy away from the cold, hard truth. Ford needs to get better on quality, recalls, warranty claims, and overall performance. And they can't afford to slip up. We lost about 100,000 units of production, <laughs> and that's very material for us. Came in late in the quarter. Uh, most of his chips, but some new supply issues. Now, you could say, hey, that's just kind of bad luck for Ford. That's not how we see it. Both events underscored an automaker in a massive revolutionary transition. The highs of the F1 Red Bull partnership, the lows of the reality and the work that is very much still ahead for Ford. Today, in an exclusive interview, just hours after the Formula One announcement in New York City, we talked to Jim Farley about all of this, the process that went into selecting Red Bull, the immediate learnings that will take place, the reality of the business climate, and the honesty from Farley that where Ford is right now just isn't good enough. Ford's story today on Cars and Culture from a CEO whose grandfather worked for Henry Ford. Jim Farley bleeds Ford blue. Today, he tells us all about it. Hi, I'm Jim Farley, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. But today, the F not only stands for Ford, it stands for Ford in F1. And he is Jim Farley from a F1 simulator at the Classic Car Club in New York City. Jim, what a pleasure to have you on the program. I'm so excited to talk to you actually this is the first time i've been on your show formally and to be on this day is even cooler 
It's very cool. Congratulations on the news of the day that Ford is headed back to Formula One for the first time in more than 20 years. I guess we're going to get a Ford versus Ferrari sequel. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I think there may be a few of those because we're going back to Le Mans as well. <laughs> so exactly. uh, we, we, we can check, we can kind of pick our, uh, the way we want to do that. But yeah, I hadn't thought about it. That's a good, that's a good point. Explain a little bit about how this came to be. You know, um, I guess as a racer, I don't think you'll meet many people privately that waste as much money on racing as I have. <laughs> and, um, you know, I like to kind of pry myself because of that, of, of being smart about racing, you know, doing it, you know, thoughtfully. Um, we obviously didn't expect the explosion of Formula One in the U.S., but we were watching it. Uh, we watched 26 standards change to a green fuel, which got us pretty interested and then uh, we, we were redoing our overall motorsports strategy. Um, and we started to look at Formula One really carefully uh, after Liberty's purchase of it. And how it came together was we kind of made up our mind that we didn't want to own a team. And we didn't even want to do a traditional um, full engine program because we just don't think that's the right presence for us. Um, it's super expensive. And we don't have a name awareness problem at Ford. So we were looking for a technology transfer. And, but we going to Formula One, we've learned enough about it that you really need to be at the very front of the pack to get kind of any recognition at all. Um, and so we just put all the pieces together with Kristen and Bill and, and uh, all my whole leadership team. I went to them uh, to make the choice. It wasn't my choice. And what we liked about it is, hey, we get to learn about aero. The best aero engineers in the world are in these Formula One teams. And we need that for our EVs because the battery is so expensive. Aero is just so important compared to the ice business. And we have great battery chemistry engineers and research and development and same on the software for the battery control. And that's what they need in 26 with this hybrid system where, you know, notionally half the power comes from pure electric. So, you know, we could have a really great technology exchange. And I was looking at like, if I had to promote my EVs, you know, who should do it? And we were thinking, my team thought, you know, no better than a Max or a Checo or Daniel Ricardo, because they really know cars. Um, and they really connect with this whole new generation of, of buyers. And so this was kind of like the, when Christian and, and, and I and Mark Rushbrook and Bill and leadership team kind of talked to each other was actually was just a matter of months. So how long had you been working on it? We've been working on the Formula One kind of strategy, so to speak, for a couple of years. Okay. And for the last year, we started to get serious. We talked to pretty much every team. We, we talked to, you know, um, all the teams were kind of in play. And uh, all the key players, we talked to all sorts of different people in the paddock, you know, from drivers and past owners. And, you know, we spent a lot of time with Formula One, frankly, uh, to learn about where they were taking the sport. And when we did all of our research, it kind of came back to this kind of practical approach. Hey, let's not buy a whole team. Let's not do, you know, just put a Ford badge on the side of the vehicle. Let's, you know, Red Bull's really far down the road with the 26 engine. Let's be a tech partner for their powertrains. 
and let's let's use these drivers to promote our EVs globally. It's almost like a skunk works operation, though. I mean, the fact it was, that yeah, it was out, right. Yeah, totally. No, it, it was actually, and and I think most things that that good happen in big car companies are like skunk works people working the janitor's closet. That's how we won Le Mans with a GT and right. most of our cool products kind of come, come from that Raptor came that from that way. So I'm instantly attracted to any kind of skunk works project. Did you have a code word for it? Yeah. Toro. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. Mm -hmm. Project Toro. What impressed you most about Christian Horner, Max Verstappen, Checo? I think the technical team who evaluated this at Ford were very impressed. Not only well funded, they they there's no fat. Like everything they do is to win. Um, so we were very impressed with that winning culture. Uh, we like the bit irreverence of the team. That kind of fits our brand uh, as well. And I think most of all, I think we really were impressed that they wanted help in certain areas. And they could give us help in certain areas. And, and there are a lot of Formula One teams that don't think they need any help or they don't want to give help. Um, I was very impressed with Kristen. He's, he's just, uh, um, you know, he wants to win. <laughs> now they're all massive competitors. And yep. you only have to look at, the, of course, the Netflix season to see that. How involved was Bill in the decision? I mean, Very I know influential. He's been, yeah, he's been at the forefront of of wanting to um, be a, a ahead of environmental issues, and yes, actually talked to me about this uh, on this program. So he was actively involved. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, because Bill always you said it. Bill had this vision for the company and the management team. You know, we're going in that direction, which is great to have that alignment. But Bill also, I mean. He and Etzel, the whole Ford family, are so passionate about racing. Um, heck, we started the company that way, right? From uh, <laughs> the proceeds from Henry's race, you know, funded Ford Motor Company. So it's kind of in our blood. It's an indigenous sport for our our industry, you know. Um, so I think um, you know made sense. I, I frankly, I I really valued. Bill's perspective because I didn't know kind of the whole history of Jaguar and forming the one program that we owned. And Bill was incredibly helpful in shaping management teams thinking uh, around how do we pra be practical about this? Like, do we really need to own? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and we pretty quickly realized like, if that's what it meant to go to formula one to own the whole team or to do a whole you know, hundred million dollar plus engine program every year. We were like, no, that that's doesn't make sense for us. We want a very surgical technical exchange. And have Bill heard, was very helpful. Have you heard from Sir Jackie Stewart about this decision? Speaking of, I haven't, I haven't checked my email today. <laughs> I'm sure you will, Jim. An investment in Formula One can require several Brinks trucks worth of resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Teams spend hundreds of millions of dollars annually, as you know, and it's chased mm -hmm. away some pretty big players in the sport previously. Mm -hmm. How do you measure the proper ROI on this? How do you evaluate the return? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, this is the best bank for the buck in motorsports. I mean, we are, there, there are not many uh, Brinks trucks here. 
uh, we're very practical about this. This is again, a very different, this is a totally different approach to Formula One that Ford's taken in the past or, or most OEMs take. Um, but of course it has to have a great return. I mean, you know, for us, getting the right arrow on, let's say the success of the F-150 Lightning is a half a billion dollar decision. So the aero talent we get from aero, you know, from Red Bull to make that kind of decision to complement our existing team is is worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I think the other thing that it is not so small is how do you like how much would it cost to have a Max Verstappen say, "I really love the Ford Mustang Machi." Hmm. Now you're a marketer, you know that. Yeah, I mean that, that like you know, first really of all, define he, it. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, because everyone knows that he knows cars, <laughs> that's his living. So he and every everyone knows Max that he's not just going to say that unless he really believes it. He's not a paid spokesperson. Um, and are people going to listen to that more than you know if we went to Hollywood and hired a really you know famous person? Yes, they will pay more attention because. He's an expert. Uh, so I, I, as I said, I, it's the best bang for the buck in motorsports um, because they, the help we're going to get in, in more profitable EVs and the promotion of the vehicle authentically, you know, by such, you know, auth, you know, respected people like these Formula One pilots, it's actually in a way it's kind of priceless. How quickly could you expect to... Uh learn from the experience or take lessons from the racetrack to migrate into Ford vehicles. Does that, does that no, start? Does no. the learning start now? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, they need the, you know, 26 is right around the corner for these guys in terms of engine technology. So, you know, they want our battery tech. Now they want our engine control, uh, our, our battery control software now, and we want the arrow now. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're both quite selfish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have all kinds of things, kinetic energy capturing. Mm -hmm. uh, there you go. The list is endless, right, Jim? It's all there. Yep. We're oh. now number two. We're now the number two hybrid maker in the U.S. People don't know mm -hmm. that. We're number two in EVs, as you know. So, I mean, there's the crossover is just going to get bigger and bigger. Formula One has planted its flag squarely in the U.S. market. As you know, Miami, Austin, Las Vegas this year. And the 23 domestic calendar is packed with what was once just an international only sport. So how does it position forward in the future? Well, what we've seen, um, not just drive to survive, although that was a big part of it, but just the overall expansion of Formula One in the US is a very diverse and young audience, uh, increasingly female. And now uh, we can go to NFL and get lots of guys. Um, but if we want to promote our EVs to the, you know, the modern young American uh, automotive group. Uh, you know, I don't think there's a better platform than Formula One. And, um, you know, look at the Austin race. I mean, uh, the Hispanic population in the U.S. is so critical for our, all of us car companies. And I mean, it's just an amazing venue. <laughs> uh for uh for for all the audiences but especially that audience so yeah what an opportunity for us 
you and I both love races and we're, we've mm-hmm. been to many of them. But I remember being on the streets of Detroit in 1982 or 83, and we were surrounded by non-Americans, mm-hmm. uh, Brazilians and uh, Europeans when the first Detroit Grand Prix took place. So it's just got to be shocking to you how much this has come around in America. Yeah, I mean, so much of business always is surprising, you know, what really happens. I mean, it was only just a couple of years ago, people were like, well, wow, the pandemic's coming, I mean, pandemic's here, and what's going to happen to Formula One, you know? Can they put on a race? I mean, look what's happened. So, yeah, it is pretty remarkable. Um, I think media buying, Liberty Media buying the sport has really been going to be one of the biggest coups in, in kind of the sports, you know, the business of sports. Um, and what Chase did and what Stefano's doing, you know, these are great business leaders who really took a sports entertainment platform and really blew it out in the U.S. Um, yeah, and we don't, it's almost hard to kind of look to the future on what it's going to become because you got these great three venues. They all have very different personalities. Um, you know, the racing world and, and the automotive world better than anyone I know. You know, it's kind of hard to predict how this will play out, but I know it's probably going to be a good thing. So what are the chances we see Jim Farley? And I'm going to get into your your the racing side mm-hmm. of you. But what are the chances that we see Jim Farley driving a Red Bull Ford around Monza or Silverstone or Austin? Very low. <laughs> very low. Yeah, uh, very low. No, for a variety of reasons. You know, you and I have known each other for a long time. I'll be really straight with you. I've always considered my racing kind of like church and state. Like there's the business of racing on the company. And then there's like Jim Farley's private hobby called racing. And they, they should never really meet. Um, even if I could, I wouldn't cross that line. Uh, I run the company. I'm responsible for our stakeholders, our shareholders, our employees, the Ford family. I'm not going to cross that line. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I think it's confusing to people if I cross that line. You know, my racing is kind of my thing and I don't, don't I don't want to burden the company with it. Um, and I, I don't want to cross that line. Like, you know, I'm somehow playing out my hobby or my, you know, younger self out in the company's, you know, time. I don't think that's right. Well, you are. So let's talk about your racing. You're into vintage racing. You have multiple cars. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I'm right on these. You have a Bud Moore Trans Am Mustang, either a 69 or a 70, I think, right? Uh, a Lola road racing car, 427 yep. Cobra, an original Ford GT. Mm-hmm. It's in your blood, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just, yeah. So, I, and that makes the decisions harder actually on motorsports because I know how hard it is to win. And I, I also know how many people waste money on racing. Um, and, and that gets me mad. I, I don't like wasting money on racing because I have to talk to Leah, my wife, about it when I, <laughs> you know, when I make a mistake on the track and I come home early. So um, it actually makes the, you know, deci- I, I'm more critical, I would say, than most people on our racing investments because of my racing. That seems a little bit ironic, but it, I'm sure it makes sense in a way. Um yeah, I, I love racing because I love being around automotive people like you. Hmm. Uh, I'm kind of a one speed person in the sense that, you know, I am completely obsessed with cars, the car industry, 
not, not the fashion part of it, but, you know, cars, old cars, new cars, it doesn't matter to me. As long as I'm around car people talking about what's next, I'm happy. And the track gives me that. And it's unfiltered. People come up to me and say, hey, my super duty did this wrong or that wrong. And, you know, other people at the country club and they don't hear those things, but I do. And that's super valuable to me. And also, um, I think about cars at the racetrack. I think about the decisions in the upcoming week and maybe a design review or uh, a software review and uh, or, or a problem we're having on supply chain. I, 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 the time at the track really gets me a chance to think. And then the car, when I'm driving, I really don't think of anything else because you can't if you want to be fast and you want to have a good duel with you know other drivers. So when I get done, I kind of feel like I've had a two-week vacation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've also said that uh, about racing, I'm more relevant to our designers and our engineers. I'm not some disconnected CEO. Correct. I really, my biggest fear, you know, I'm kind of a volunteer in this job. And I, I, I want to make sure that when I step in the design studio, um, they're going to tell me the truth. Like I can talk to the clay modeler and say, which I often do, I say, you know, I know they all love this, but do you love it? And what are the other clay modelers? And they're like, we don't, we don't like it, Mr. Farley. Don't, don't say yes to that one. <laughs> and, um, you know, if I wasn't racing, I mean, would they say that? I, maybe they would, but maybe they're more inclined to tell me the truth because they know I really care about the products and they, and I'm really passionate about it. And, they, and they're like, you know, no, no, it's not good enough for a Mustang. <laughs> yeah. So. I think it helps a lot in, in a lot of softer ways. But Stellantis CEO, Carlos Tavares, believes mm -hmm. the same thing. He's a racer. Totally. Yeah. I've seen him at the racetrack in Europe, and he's, by the way, a fantastic driver. Unfortunately, he he uh, he drives like a T70 with a Chevy motor in it, which I always give him a hard time. <laughs> Have you guys competed against each other? Oh, yeah, many times. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I've been on the same track win? with him many times. Did you win? I, you know, I, I don't want to go there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good, well, we'll good ask question, him. but no. Yeah. Ask him, see what he says and and let me know. Um, you, I remember, I remember, I remember uh, being at Spa or, you know, uh, Paul Ricard or something and looking over and like he and I are in the driver's meeting and I took some personal satisfaction of like having two of us, uh, you know, there in the driver's meeting and the stewards like, and if you get a red flag, you're never going to race again in this series. Um, yeah. I mean, those are the, yeah, it's great to have Carlos. I mean, I, I think it's really special because Mark, um, I haven't talked to Mark much about his racing, but I know Carlos and, and uh, he's fit. I mean, Carlos races literally every weekend of the year. Yeah. He is really, I, I keep asking him like, where do you get your funding? Because <laughs> I know he treats it like me, church and state. So I don't. He's really, he's really savvy. He has better backers than my wife Leah. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Ford CEO Jim Farley. And to see my interview with Jim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some ninety interviews. 
The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Ford CEO, Jim Farley. And to see my interview with Jim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 90 interviews. Let's, uh, let's shift gears, if I, if I may. Uh, let's grab second gear on this. Uh, okay. On this whole talk. The Farley family has amazing Ford heritage. Mm -hmm. It's well known that your grandfather, Emmett Tracy, worked for Ford, employee number 389, as you and I have talked about yep. in the past. He worked on the Model T assembly line. What does mm -hmm. Ford mean to you personally? It means it, it has meant and will mean the entire prosperity of our family. My grandfather had nothing. He was the simplest, most modest immigrant you could imagine. Hmm. And all our college education came from his job at Ford. Um, I don't, I mean, Ford, actually, I would just say it this way. I work for the Fords. I don't work for a car company. I work for the Ford family. And the Ford family is not just Bill and his family. It's also my grandfather and all the other people in the company. I, I guess it's a lifestyle. It's a volunteer job. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's like who I am. Yeah. I literally, I would say the same thing that most four people do cut me. It comes out Ford blue. Yeah. Yeah. You came from a company, Toyota, whose culture mm -hmm. was not only studied by business schools, uh, as being the exemplary company, uh, frankly, it's culture has been um, modeled and admired by many. This show is called Cars and Culture. How would you describe the Ford culture? It's very different than the Toyota culture. Um, and it's changing, by the way, a lot. I would say the historical Ford culture post-World War II was very hierarchical, extremely Midwest polite. That's a good thing incredibly empathetic like this did not happen at the other car company work if someone gets sick at ford you should see what the employees do around that person like just surround them mm -hmm. um if something bad happens in someone's life like there is no other and and people say at ford like well you know everyone help me it's it's ford um uh vertically oriented that means like people define success on their job title or you know their vertical the vertical achievements mm -hmm. um and i think the culture that we're changing into is quite different you know it's really what we want to create a ford is an evolution of that we don't want to get rid of the values of the company like you know when the pandemic hit we had 400 employees driving to north Carolina, 
North Dakota to help with, you know, ventilators. I mean, we yeah. didn't, I, Jim Hackett didn't say, uh, could you guys head out to North Dakota? They have a trouble. They want to triple the output. You know, it's like those values when the Rouge boiler blew up, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Just it's the company's kind of wired up value wise to help the community. Like, you know, we have 400 schools in Mexico. We, you know, so many of our dealers really fundamentally impacting their community. So I think the values won't change at the company, but the culture will. And the culture is really about deeper technical experts instead of generalists. It's, it's becoming more about collaboration than whose team you're on. And um, especially it's, um, it's, it's about solving problems instead of observing them. So sometimes in a hierarchical um, company, you like, it becomes like professional accomplishment if you can admire a problem really well, like describe it and describe it in a way that other people would be able to see and they don't see it. I call that admiring problem or doing business with yourself, you know, negotiating, get alignment. We got to get alignment. Well, I don't know if they'll agree. We got to get alignment. You know, that all, all that stuff has got to go. Um, but we don't have to change our values to do that. Um, but it's going to be a big shift because the competitive field is so, so brutal right now in a good way that our culture has to change. And that's the hardest part of my job. Yeah. How closely do you monitor cultural shifts? It sounds like you pay attention to it on a regular basis. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we're getting better at measuring, you know, the aspects of culture that we care about. Um, you know, we, we used to be a company where, you know, 95% of the people got a hundred percent of their bonus. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and so now I measure. I mean, it's just one of several things I look at is how many people got 100 percent. I mean, I don't know about you, but like as a husband, I don't think I've ever had a year of being married where I was just perfectly at 100 percent. I was like 121 percent. I was in 72 percent some years. And uh, we're so going to check in on that answer, too, actually. <laughs> Not with Carlos, so, though. Yeah, exactly. So. I, I just don't think that's how business life works. Um, you know, you're either 78% or 72% or, you know, 106%, but you're not a hundred percent. No mm -hmm. way 90% of the company could be that. So we need to differentiate pay. You know, we need to measure technical expertise. Uh, we need to measure if someone is a change agent, like they're solving problems and they lean into action. Their first intuition is to do something, not talk about doing something. Um, and, uh, people that, you know, maybe really bright and, and really know what to do and are really valuable to the company, but no one wants to work with them because they don't co collaborate. So we are, we are getting better at measuring these things. Um, it's, it's going to dictate your compensation at the company. If you manage people, whether you fit the culture, um, it'll dictate who gets hired. I, who who gets ahead, who gets more responsibility. It won't be seniority necessarily, although that matters. It will be based on meritocracy, on the kind of behaviors that we think are important, like collaboration, excellence, and problem solving. This is a massive cultural shift for Ford Motor Company. It is. Um, 
And you know, it's, it's, it's non-negotiable because when you look at our industrial system, our purchasing team is now supply chain, uh, manufacturing and engineering. I would say, you know, we have a huge cultural debt, like a, a tech debt almost um, that, that like we have to get out of, you know, when I pick up, you know, some of the publications in our industry for the last two years, Jim Farley is the, is the CEO that's recalled more vehicles in our industry than anyone for two years in a row. Um, you don't fix that by just screaming it at the top of the hill and saying, fix quality. Quality is job one. No, you have to actually change the culture. Introducing problem solving, lean way of operating. Um, and I'm extremely thankful for my experience at Toyota because I saw so many Americans love working in a lean system. Let's talk about, you just alluded to it. Let's talk about some of the latest headlines. And just this week, you blamed your fourth quarter performance on poor execution. You said, mm -hmm. to say I'm frustrated is an understatement. You said, the year could have been so much more for us. We have deeply entrenched issues in our industrial system that have proven tough to root out. Candidly, the strength of our products and revenue has masked this dysfunctionality for a long time. What were you referring to? I was referring to our supply chain team that, you know, we, we bought a lot of chips from brokers, but we should have been trading short-term availability for chips to, from the chip suppliers by committing to the long-term technology roadmap, um, sticking with them. We, we should have, you know, settled on our lump sum agreements with our suppliers when they got hit with inflation and premium freight and, um, we should have settled them really quickly instead of waiting as long as we did because it cost us a lot of extra in the end. If you're a supplier and you have a outstanding billion dollar, you know, bill with Ford Motor Company, are you going to give your parts to General Motors? You can give them to Ford or Toyota. You know, uh, you know, if one of them has that kind of deficit, yeah, you're going to treat us differently. Um, you know, our manufacturing systems. When I walk through the plants, I mean, it's nothing personal; it's just business. You know, I see some of our plants that are world-class in quality, right up there with Toyota on the way they operate the plant. Other plants, I walk in, I don't know if I'm winning or losing on quality. I, I talk to an individual operator. They can't tell me if we're winning or losing. Uh, I can't, I don't know what my gap is to competition on the buy, you know, final assembly in terms of quality. Um, and so we can't have that variance in our manufacturing facilities. Um and, and on engineering, you know, I think probably it takes us 25% more engineers to do the same work statements, some of our competitors. I can't afford to be 25% inefficient. And, and those are controllable by the team leaders at Ford. They're there to make those changes to be competitive. Um, you know, we, the industry got washed over last year with supply, you know, chip issues and a lot of issues, inflation. It was kind of how we reacted to them is why I said what I said. And I own it. I'm the CEO. I'm not passing a buck. I'm going to talk about it. You know, I could have let John do all my CFO do all the interviews yesterday. I didn't do that. You know, I'm accountable. That's what I get paid to. And um, I want my team to know where we stand. And the Explorer and the Mach-E and the F-150, as you know, have all had launch or defect or recall issues. Correct. 
still still a problem going to be solved actually yeah so that's the good part of the story is like you know reporting the numbers is one thing but what i'm starting to see for the first time in several years now is our initial quality is getting much better and we i told the team was like look i want you to know from me if you were given a choice between launching something that you know wasn't just right and we'll fix it in the field to stopping the launch and not shipping it, stop it. Mm-hmm. Like I give you permission. And I think Alan did the same thing many years ago. Um, we we need to we need to relieve the pressure on our team if something isn't engineered right to not release it. And uh, so right now our launches are you know some of the best quality launches we've had you know ever, but it is taking longer to the ramp, and that's okay because we're finding problems and fixing them, but we don't want to do that on the back of our customers. You said this week that Ford left about $2 billion of profit on the table uh, this past year. Yeah. That's a sobering number, Jim. <laughs> yeah, because because in a normal you know ongoing industry, it'd be a huge number, but it's even more important now because that $2 billion would be invested in our growth business. Right. So like, and you and I both know if you want to invest by 2 billion over the course of 10 years, you know, that's like dozens of new products, you know, that's no bueno. I, I think we have plenty of cash to, to, um, to fund our growth by the way, but um, you know, this is, this is going to, this is going to hurt the company long-term. Um, and that's why this turnaround in the industrial side is so important. You know, look, Everyone in business wants the clean answer. Everyone wants the perfect answer to every question. The reality is these huge transformations of like a Ford, it takes time and you get surprised. There's the one thing I know as a leader is you're going to get surprised. Did I think I'd be the number two EV player in the US right now? No. Do I think I would have a better uh, hands-free driving system than the Tesla FSD? No. Do I think that I would have the best-selling EV pickup truck right now? No. I thought Cybertruck could be out. I thought, you know, the GM products would be out. I thought Rivian maybe do better. The fact is, is our building part has gone faster than I expected. And the other surprise is, ironically, the 120-year-old part of our industrial system has gone a little slower than I expected. And um, But that's okay because these are not easy things but as i tell my team if not you who you know we have to make these changes we will be surprised it's how fast we react and it's is really the test for us the non 120 year old company still gets a lot of headlines and you just mentioned mm-hmm. one of one of its products what about tesla still impresses you i love their charging network you know, people still talk about the supercharger network is a really cool thing. I love the fact that they kind of approach the business in the in the do the opposite of the ice intuition. I love that instinct they have. I love their growth kind of mantra. Um, and I love the fact that they hold their people accountable for performance. There's a lot I don't like about the company. I don't think they should have released their self-driving software. I, I think that was a mistake. I, I, I don't think their products, their products are going to commoditize like the Model T did. 
I think we've learned, we learned a big lesson, the Model T. You can cut your prices all you want, like Henry did. But at some point, you cut your prices so much that you become a commodity product. And people don't want to buy a commodity product in automobiles. It is not a commodity product. There's certainly commodity parts of the industry, like commercial or low-end subcompact. But I don't want to be in the commodity part of the industry. Um, but what I really admire about um, Tesla is their efficiency. They just fight every day to get rid of waste. And boy, would Henry Ford love that. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Rob, page right out of his book. Uh, cutting prices, they cut their, they slash their prices on, yep. on their vehicles by as much as 20%. You also cut prices on the Mach-E mm -hmm. anywhere from $1,000 to $6,000. What was the, the rationale behind the pricing change? Well, first of all, I mean, we didn't have to change our price on Lightning and E-Transit because we don't have really a lot of competition. So that's probably the biggest story is that we pick segments where we kind of were like the first mover. Um, look, we as soon as Tesla changes price, we saw our order bank change. We had like a year order bank or something like that, Amaki. Like within days, it had shrunk. We had a lot of cancel orders and um, we never designed the first generation of EVs to be like super profitable or now that lithium and nickel have gone up so much in price, especially lithium, you know, definitely not profitable business. We never designed them because we just didn't know about EVs. Um, and so we, you know, we, we have to follow because we're putting in a lot of extra capacity for Maki. We're basically doubling the capacity and um, you know, we, we, these are all new people for cost for, um, for Ford. And a lot of them are going to buy our second cycle of products, which will be profitable. So in a way, you know, we don't want to just cut the factory. We want to continue to learn how to merchandise and promote the product in the EV world. It's been almost a year since you announced Ford Blue's focus on combustion engine vehicles and mm -hmm. Model E on EVs. That was monumental. One year in, how did, how's the transition going? Uh, better than I thought. Um, some of the things that the team said, hey, we have to watch out. Uh, those watch outs have come true. Um, turns out actually Blue's a growth business, but there was some concern. Hey, you know, it's at the light, like the old part of Ford. Um, you know, again, we work in, like it was Cadillac metaphor. I mean, Kodak metaphor. It's like I'm working in the film processing department or am I going to be working on the new like iPhone competitor? Um, <laughs> so there, there was some of, of that. And, you know, that's certainly we've had to spend a lot of time talking to people that, hey, Blue is going to grow or we're expanding the capacity for Super Duty and a lot of, you know, trucks and Bronco and Maverick. Um, I think what really I'm thankful for, thank God we did it, by the way, not because, you know, uh, to Seth, to rationalize it, but I've just seen like the growth business go much deeper. So Ford Pro to me is the most exciting thing happening at Ford. Not, not to pick one, but I think it it really is the future of our company because it's integrates software, physical experiences, um, and the digital product and, and ICE product all together in one business. It, it doesn't make, Pro doesn't make vehicles like Blue and E, but it, it distributes and service service business on top of that. And I think that's where our industry is going. So um, boy, is Ted and the pro team made progress in the last year. Like I've just seen things happen, build out our software. We're now growing 70% a month. 
uh, a year last year on our software. 50% of our commercial customers who buy an EV from Ford are buying chargers from us and the charging software from us. Um, you know, our parts business is growing really fast, like John Deere or Caterpillar now, because we have real focus on professional uh, after sales, which is completely different than retail after sales. Um, so it's just that focus. Uh, um, you know, if I, if I ask everyone kind of like from seven in the morning to nine, please work on the new super duty. Then from nine 30 to noon, <laughs> could you please work on some software for our new electric architecture? And then from one, you know, I mean, you, you need focus in our industry now. Well, and amazingly, right. The F series pickup generates 42 billion a year in revenue which yeah. I didn't know is larger by that measure than McDonald's, Coke, or Starbucks. <laughs> it's incredible. F-Series alone, the revenue in F-Series alone is the second largest revenue consumer product in the world. The number one is iPhone. We're behind iPhone. I mean, people have no idea how big the F-Series business is. It is huge. Final question, and I have to ask this on this momentous day, this Formula One day for Ford, and you'll know why I waited until the end of the interview to ask this. Mm. With Cadillac and Andretti teaming up with a proposed mm. F1 team and with Ford Red Bull, isn't this just another example of a Motown throwdown? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you know, I, I think the more the merrier. I mean, racing, like most things in life, business, it's all about competition. And uh, I mean, I, I just think it would be thrilling to uh, to have. And, you know, how cool is it that we would potentially be doing this sport totally differently? You know, um, which is exactly how it should be. Every company's different. We're all box chocolates. And um, I like, I mean, I think that would be so exciting. I mean, to, to have, you know, the Chevy and the Ford fans or the Cadillac and the Ford fans, whatever it is, um, and the Andretti and the Red Bull fans, um, you know, both rooting for their teams on the track. I mean, it's Adidas, Nike. <laughs> you you could pick the <laughs> metaphor. It's that's what business is all about. How exciting! How exciting! With that exciting. Be? Congratulations yeah. on this exciting day. It is Ford versus Ferrari sequel to to come. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Farley, yeah. thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for um, everything you've done here today. All the best. Thanks again to my guest, Ford CEO Jim Farley. And to see my interview with Jim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 90 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road.